Good morning, Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you in our virtual service again this morning. You know, three words come to my mind as I think about this passage that we're about to study today in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The first word is the word awkward. Uh, And that's because in verses 17 and 18, Paul makes a really strong case about how you really need to compensate your elders pretty well. So from my perspective as the one who's preaching it, it kind of seems a little self-serving. But then again, uh, in verses 20 to 21, Paul makes the case that if your church leaders, your church elders are in need of strong rebuke, that you should rebuke them. So being the one that preaches it kind of seems a little self-defeating at the same time. So awkward would be the first word. The second word that comes to my mind when I think about this passage is the word hard. I was on staff at my first church for two years, just two years, when my senior pastor quit, left the church, got a divorce, and I was asked to take over. My first official duty as the new pastor of the church was to basically conduct church discipline on a very unruly elder. And really what promoted, or what prompted me was Paul's command here in this very passage in verse 21. So hard is the second word as I think about this particular passage. The third and final word, which is my favorite of the three by far, is the word practical. And that reason being is that not only is this passage practical for how we order our lives together as a church, but it's also practical in thinking about how we tend to interact with one another, which in turn reveals our view, whether or not we have a biblical view of how people uh, function. In other words, if you struggle with people, if you struggle uh, relating to people who let you down or allowing people to change your mind for the better, I hope 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25 has something for you today as well. Now, yes, I hope as our study of this passage uh, gets into your mind, that will make you a better church member. But I also hope that this study of this passage will help you to realize and see people in a way closer to the way Jesus saw them, and that'll make some sense as we unpack it. So practically speaking, Paul's going to make two important points, and and we'll hit on those two points, but then there's going to be a third point that that we draw out of it that I think is based on an inference of why Paul has to give the commands the way he does. So the two points are, number one, how to take care of diligent elders, and then number two, how to take care of disqualified elders. And then based on those, those two, what does Paul's commands reveal about us? So that's the way we're going to look at this passage, those three points. Let's take them one at a time. How to take care of diligent elders. As we pick this passage up, Paul is continuing his instructions on how the life of the church is to be organized. We learned in chapter 3 that the church is a household of God. It is a pillar and, and buttress of the truth. And so Paul has spent a great deal of time talking about relationships within the church. And here, Paul wants to make sure, or Paul wants to ensure, the strength of the church is maintained. And the principal way for that to happen is that there would be men who are able to dedicate their time and their lives to its work, particularly to the work of proclaiming God's Word. Now, this was uh, to Paul, and it is still of most paramount importance you recall what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, as he was writing to these, uh, to this, to these Christians in Ephesus, that they need to put a premium, premium on the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and to teaching. 
Well, for that to happen then, men need to be set aside for that work. But in order for that to happen, those physical needs of those men need to be provided for. You know, I always tell people that I don't get paid to be a pastor. I don't get paid to preach the gospel. I was preaching the gospel long before there was a financial component to it. But I do receive a salary that sets me free to devote my full energies, my full focus, and my full time to the work of ministry, primarily to the study and teaching and preaching of God's Word. Now, those two may seem like not much of a distinction, but the difference between those two are huge. I'm not a mercenary, as Paul would say later in the New Testament, that does this simply because I receive financial remuneration. I have been recognized by the church, and by this church in particular, to be set aside for that high honor and privilege. And Paul, by the way, was also a big advocate of this. As he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, this is what Paul says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, in Paul's overall argument in Timothy, what he's trying to say is that if you want a church that is strong, if you want a church that is rooted in the gospel, if you want a church that is flourishing, that is nourished by the gospel, that is guarded and protected, provide for men to do this important work of preaching and teaching the gospel. And even here in our passage, Paul makes that same case from both the Old Testament and the New Testament as he quotes an axiom from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 about the uh, not muzzling the ox as it treads out the grain, and then Jesus' word in Luke chapter 10 verse 7. But secondly, Paul's not simply referring to the, the financial and physical provision of these men these elders, these leaders of the church. But notice in verse 19, he's also providing for the social protection of these men as well. Let me read it to you. Verse 19, Paul writes, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not implying that these church leaders are like cupcakes or snowflakes or man boys, and you need to te- you know, treat them with kids' gloves. That, that's, that's not what he's getting at at all. What Paul is saying is that the work of the ministry, is oftentimes when you're confronting sin, challenging false doctrine, or having to correct sinful lifestyles, will elicit a reaction sometimes a really strong reaction. I remember uh, a couple years ago, um, Lori asked me how things were going in the ministry. And I said to her, you know, sometimes, babe, I feel like ministry is nothing but getting husbands and boyfriends really mad at me. And the reason being, um, it seemed like that entire month, I just had one man after another man that I needed to talk to, challenge, or confront. One guy had a massive anger problem that needed to be uh, called on. Uh, another guy was being manipulative in his, in his marriage with his wife, and another young man left his wife. It was like for a whole month, I had one knucklehead conversation after the other. Now, to be clear, 
I love, if, if two of the three men, two of them left, the one left his wife and went back to the Midwest, and the other just left the church. Now, to be clear, if either one of them walked through those doors right now, I would look him in the eye, I would give that guy a bear hug. I mean, I would love it because I love these guys. Now, if they're still uh, involved in their behavior, then that bear hug would turn into like a you know, headlock and I'd think, what's going on? But the point is, I love these guys. And that was part of the motivation of having to call them out on their sin. The point is this, the one guy, uh, I call him the anger management fella, uh, we were right down here at this Starbucks over on Cabot. Man, he was just, actually the very thing that I had to challenge him on, the very thing that we needed to call him out on as elders was displaying itself right then and there. This guy was losing his mind. He was yelling. He was saying, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to get you fired. Who do I need to call? And you can't talk to me about this. And you can't tell me how to live, blah, blah, blah. And he was just going, going ballistic. But that's the reality. His sinful anger was damaging relationships, was sowing seeds of discord, and was causing a rupture in the church, and it had to be dealt with. Now, Paul's implication here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, really when he says, look, verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's an implication is that you shouldn't be surprised if there is a charge brought against an elder. I mean, when you poke the bear it's going to roar. When you challenge sin, when you try to correct doctrine that's false, that leads other people astray, there's going to be a response. So on the one hand, we actually shouldn't be surprised when there is an accusation brought against an elder. That's part of the nature of the job. It's going to happen. So Paul says, look, don't entertain it. At the same time, however, if there are two or three witnesses and they're, and they're sharing the exact same experience, then consider it. But, but the, 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 the temperament is only then begin to consider it. There's going to be accusations. The work of ministry is hard when you're having to challenge people's lifestyles that are not consistent with Scripture, when you're having to, to hold up the mirror of God's Word and say, your life is not matching this, there needs to be a change, there's going to be a reaction. So it stands to reason there's going to be anger, there's going to be accusations made against the elders. Paul says, don't admit them, they're going to happen. But if you get two or three witnesses and there's the same experience happening, then you must consider it. You see, Paul's words in verse 17, speaking of this double honor, it doesn't just re re refer to the, the financial or physical provision, but also the social protection, the, the reputation of these men. So provide for them and honor them, defend them, value them. But I want you to notice a balance. Notice in verses 19 and 20, both must be taken together. So he says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those, verse 20, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So notice what Paul is doing. Paul is writing to Timothy and by way of application and extension to the Christians in the Ephesian church, and by way of application to all of us, Christians don't listen to frivolous accusations, but on the other hand, do not ignore a serious situation. Let me say that again. Paul is saying, hey, don't listen to frivolous accusations, but don't ignore a serious situation 
either. John Stott, he's, he's probably one of my, my favorite pastor theologian heroes of the 20th century. Uh, Time Magazine named him in 2005 one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He said this, Christians must be cautious in accusing and bold in rebuking as the situation demands. That's good, isn't it? Christians must be cautious. We take our time. We are slow to, to, to bring accusations. We want to give every ample opportunity. We want to give the benefit of the doubt. We want to listen, hear the sides of the story, really weigh what's going on. We want to be cautious in bringing any accusation. But if it's found to be true, if, if there's something that's egregious that needs to be changed or challenged, we need to be equally bold in rebuking that problem or that situation. And Paul knew that that situation would arise and it would demand that kind of ferocity. And so he was giving instruction to Timothy and these Christians in the Ephesian churches to do that very thing. So he talks about how you take care of those diligent elders, provide for them so that they can pour themselves into the important work of God's Word so that the church can be strengthened and maintained and sustained, but not just their physical and financial provision, but watch their reputation, watch their standing socially, honor them in that way as well. That's how you take care of diligent elders. But how do you deal with disqualified elders? Well, that's what he says in verse 20, you rebuke them strongly. And Paul knew that this was going to be necessary. After all, he told this church that there's going to be elders among you who go off the rails and you need to deal with them. You say, well, where, where's he do that? So stay in 1 Timothy and go with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, some of you may recognize that chapter. It's, it's when Paul calls the elders of the Ephesians church to meet with him as he is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's kind of giving him the, the last charge, so to speak. Paul had poured his life into these Christians, and now he was moving on. This is the same church, by the way, that Timothy now was pastoring. And he says in Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 29, Paul says this, I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul knew very well, look, as soon as I leave, this is what's going to happen. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So, so who was Paul talking to? He says, look, guys, after I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in from among your own selves. Who were the people he was talking to? Who are their own selves? Well, they were the elders of the Ephesian church. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. He called the elders down. And he says, guys, after I leave, from amongst your own number are going to rise up men saying twisted things to lead disciples after them. And haven't we seen back in 1 Timothy, that was exactly what Paul was saying. Timothy, I left you there to charge certain people to teach no other doctrines. Don't give in to false teaching. Well, this is exactly what's going on. So Paul knew that this was going to happen, and he was teaching them, this is how you deal with a disqualified elder. They've left the truth of the Scripture, and they're teaching some erroneous things. They're disqualified. That's sinful. You've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. The question of whether or not this is going to be hard or awkward is irrelevant. If there is sin and they persist in it, so, like, there's a pattern, there's a lifestyle. They, they refuse to turn from it. Then you need to deal with it. Now, let's be clear. 
Paul's not talking about issues of preference or personality or perception, right? So, so if you have an elder and you don't like the way that that elder talks to you, or if you don't like the way that elder dresses, or, or if that elder's not interested in your fishing story, that is not worthy of rebuke. That's not what Paul is talking about here, right? He's talking about sin. Now, I, I know that seems like that's obvious, right? That, that, that issues of personality differences you wouldn't get upset about or, or your particular perception or, you know, that you'd only deal with issues of sin, but you'd be surprised how many churches are just embroiled and consumed of, of, of kind of internal divisions all about perceptions or personalities or people's preferences while issues of sin and righteousness go completely ignored. When there is sin... When it's sin, not a personality thing, not a perception thing, not preference, when there's sin, you have to deal with it. And friends, this this has um, applications not just to the leadership of the church. If there's sin in your family, you need to deal with it. If, If you are a ministry leader and there is sin in your ministry, you need to deal with it. If there is a sin in your friendship group, you need to deal with it. Don't don't wait for the elders. Don't wait for the entire church to get involved. You got to deal with it. That's a biblical principle. Here, it happens to be the leadership of the church, but all through the Scripture, we see that principle that God will not bless if sin is tolerated. You think of Joshua chapter 7. Right as they're going to to take the promised land, they realize the Lord, Achan, um, Achan is sinning against the Lord, against the clear commands of the Lord, and the Lord won't bless them. The, the people of Israel get defeated, and they say, why? What's going on? And the Lord says, because there's sin in your camp. Deal with it. And when Joshua and the children of Israel deal with it, they go on to have victory. We see the same dynamic in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, just as the church is kind of moving into their own promised land, right? After Pentecost and things are going crazy and gangbusters, the gospel's going out, people are getting saved and and people are giving up their goods to help one another out. And and a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira say, ooh, we see the esteem given to these other Christians when they're contributing to everyone's needs. Let's go do some shady business deal and and sell some property and, and give part to the church, but tell them we gave it all to the church. And what happened? They were struck dead. What's the principle? There's sin, you got to deal with it. As a matter of fact, Joshua 7 and Acts chapter 5 are often uh, corollary passages to each other, that God would not bless even His own work if sin was being tolerated in the camp. And friends, that's just the biblical principle. If there's sin, you have to deal with it. Now, now, why do I make that point so strong? Why does Paul make that point so strongly? Because Paul recognizes the, the, the understandable human tendency to want to avoid that conflict because it really is hard. So he reminds Timothy, he reminds these Christians, and by extension, he reminds us with a really strong kind of um, charge. Verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules. The the pronoun these refers to what just came before, verses 19 and 20 in particular. Keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. And then in verses 22 to 25, Paul just offers some really practical guidance that can help us determine a diligent elder from a disqualified elder, and we can sum up his counsel in in two phrases. We see that there in verses 22 to 25. 
Number one, take care. And number two, take time. And friends, this is, this is just wise counsel. Whether or not it's about picking leaders for your church, uh, it could be the same, picking a spouse to marry or a friend group to invest your life in. Character is revealed as seen over time. Very important. Character is revealed over time. Let me say something, just a quick word about this, and and then wrap up our time by looking at uh, what Paul's commands to Timothy and the Ephesian church might reveal about the human heart and see if there's any way that that it's applicable to us. So let me just say this real quick about discernment. Discernment is a as much a theological issue as it is a practical issue. In other words, discernment is knowing something about the nature of people as much as it is about a checklist of habits or achievements or actions someone has done or hasn't done. Now, the fact that Paul has to be so forceful about how a church engages its, its leaders reveals something about our own natures and how we interact with one another. And that's where we get into our third point. So what does Paul's counsel to these people reveal about us? Notice with me again in the text. um, You see right in the middle of it, these verses from 19 to 21. Now on the one hand, notice like verse 19, on the one hand, Paul seems to have to to pump the hate breaks on these people, right? He says, whoa, 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 take it easy. Don't be so quick to try to uh, believe wrong about someone. You got to relax a little bit, pull this back, right? Yet on the other hand, on verse 20, Paul's really pressing the point. You need to rebuke this person and you got to do this publicly, So those seem like two very different counsels. On the one hand, Paul's saying, slow down, don't do this. On the other hand, Paul's saying, speed it up, get to this. What's going on? And and, and in kind of bolstering those two is verse 21, that that heavy charge. I charge you to keep these rules. And and here's the key, I think, when Paul says, without prejudice or without partiality or, or favoritism. In other words... You see Paul writing to Timothy and and to us, watch the very human tendency to be favorably inclined to some and unfairly prejudiced against others. See, the Bible is tapping into um, the fact that we have a problem with seeing people fairly and fully all the time. What I mean mean by that is that we can tend to lionize or demonize people, can't we, right? Like they're they're either the hero or the villain. We either show favoritism or prejudice. We heap praise or we're just going to seek to punish them. We might ignore certain faults in one individual, but we'll persecute those same exact faults in someone else. We might, we we unwisely put some people on a pedestal and we unfairly throw some people in a pit. Some people can do no wrong, some people can do no right. You you get my point. When we kind of have this real binary way of looking at people, relationships can be really hard. And we don't just do that with types of people. We can treat the same person that way in a given day, right? Like, so we treat them all like this one part of the day, and we can treat them all like this the other part of the day, or part of the week we treat them this way, the other part we treat them that way, and that just makes relationships really difficult in general. 
Paul knew the tendency to be either too lenient or too harsh, and he knew that wasn't just a problem in, in, for people dealing with church leadership. That's just a human problem that we have dealing with one another all the time. So the question we have to ask is, how, how do we get out of this kind of rigid, binary way of seeing people that we either put them on a pedestal or we just throw them down in a pit? How do we see people just like we are, like peers, like us, capable of godliness and capable of, of being sinful? Well, how do we do that? And that's a big problem we have in relationships. We either expect too much from people or we hope for too little from people. But you see, the Bible, the Bible puts forth a view of people that gives us the balance. And that is that every individual is made in the image of God, capable of reflecting His amazing character, yet at the same time also ruined by sin, capable of all manner of wrong. That's very important. And, and, and we are both, of the, this side of heaven, we are both of those things. We're not just one or the other until Christ does that amazing work of complete, uh, glorifying us and changing us. This side of the eternal veil we're not one or the other. We're both of those things, made in the image of God, but ruined by sin. And by the way, isn't this how Jesus treated people as well? So you have the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? She, she clearly was a woman who was not faithful to her promises. She was living in sin. She had gone through marriage after marriage after marriage, and, and she gave up on the whole covenant right there. But Jesus did not hold that against her. He actually honored her. He sat down and had conversation with her, and she was the first one to hear from him that he was the Messiah. We see this with Jesus and Zacchaeus, who Jesus honored Zacchaeus of all the people he could have shared table fellowship with, of all the homes that he could have went into that night. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have meal with, I'm going to have dinner with you tonight, even though he knew Zacchaeus was profiting off the oppression of his own people as a tax collector. We see this Jesus dealing this way with the, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. He was the first to defend her and protect her dignity, even though he knew she was guilty of adultery and that she was guilty of the sin that they were accusing her of. We see this with Jesus and Nicodemus. Even though Nicodemus was his great religious leader, he chastised him for not knowing better. We see this with Jesus' own disciples, whom he loved and poured his life into and had to rebuke them several times. You see, Jesus never treated people as if they were just one or the other. He never treated the righteous or the religious, excuse me, as if they would always do the righteous thing, and he never treated the irreligious as if they would always do the wicked thing. He treated each as capable of both and was able to love them even though he knew that there was sin was able, was able to, to forcibly come against their sin because he loved them. And you want to know why and how Jesus was able to do this? And this is the key for the way we can relate to one another as well. Number one, Jesus knew what we all are by creation. And what is that? Genesis 1 tells us we are image bearers of God's image, God's character. So he knew what we were by creation but Jesus also knew what we are by, by the fall. So we are image bearers, but we are also sinners. 
So not only did he know what we are by creation, he knows what we are by the fall, but he also knows what we would one day become by redemption. We would be sons and daughters of God. And Jesus could have this perspective, this balanced view, where he could understand that we were, we were godly yet sinful at the same time and treat us accordingly as the situation demanded. Because as Hebrews 12.1 says, Christ, let me read it to you, he says, for the joy that was set before him, so for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. Now, what's the joy that was set before Christ? The joy that was set before Christ, according to Isaiah 53, 11 and John 17, 22, was that, according to Isaiah, that he would make many accounted for righteousness, and John 17, that we would share, we would actually share in his glory. So the joy that was set before him is that he was redeeming humanity, and because of that joy, he could face the cross, even though he despised that shame. So he could hold intention that these are all image bearers of God who are ruined by sin. But one day again, they will be reconciled to be sons and daughters of God. Friends, do do you want to love people well? Do you want to love your church leaders well? Do you want to love the person, I was going to say in the pew, but there's no one in the pew, the the person sitting next to you well. Do you want to love people well? To be able to value them, esteem them, and, and honor them, and hold them out without any sense of, of, of envy or a desire for a payback, but because you, you want to honor them. Do you want to love people well to be able to challenge them, to rebuke them without a sense of self-righteousness and, and your own sinful pettiness? then see them through the grid of God's redemptive work. See them through a biblical worldview that all of us are made in God's image, ruined by sin, that that we can be godly and sinful at the same time, that we're never going to always be on a pedestal, nor should we always be in a pit, that we're all peers, we're all beggars telling other beggars where we can find food, that we're all equals to each other in need of grace, receiving grace, giving grace, and that grace takes many forms, financial provision and honor, loving rebuke and challenge. But that's how we learn to love people well. We see them as God, see God doing this work of redeeming humanity, those who trust in Christ. This frees us to love them like we should because we can trust the work that God is doing in renewing people to be like Christ, worthy of value and honor and esteem. But we can also love them well, and it frees us to challenge them, knowing that they've been warped by sin, and they need loving ministry to speak truth and love to them to restore them. You see, in verse 21, the reason why Paul could be so forceful is because he wants us to overcome our sinful tendency to either show prejudice or favoritism to one another And to realize there's something far greater at stake that's taking place in our interactions that we we are so often unaware of. Let me conclude by by, by reading a little bit from C.S. Lewis who says it best in his book, The Weight of Glory. Lewis writes this, The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption which, as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection of proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Friends, Paul's instructions on how we interact with our church leaders is much more than helpful guidance for church structure, but a look at how we interact with people in general. Do we discern people through merely the the filter of our own preferences, uh, personalities, and perceptions, or through the objective grid of the gospel that they are redeemed sinners? Do you see your Christian brother and sister only as redeemed, and so therefore you expect perfection? Or do you see people as just sinners, and therefore you have no compassion, no patience, no esteem for them? Can you see them as both? If you can, you are contributing to making the church stronger, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth in the household of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the wisdom of your word. Lord, as we look at a passage about kind of how do we relate to church leadership, it soon becomes really clear that it's more than just how we relate to church leadership, but how we relate to one another. And Father, forgive us for viewing one another through our own grids of preference and personality and our own perceptions, rather than the grid of what your word teaches us. That we are all in this story of being made in your image, but ruined by our sin and redeemed in Christ. Father, we pray that we would be a counterculture to this world around us, and so thereby proclaiming the gospel just in the simple ways that we interact with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.